Hi, welcome to The Brook. My name is Muchi Cable. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Honored, excited that we could connect together in this way for this moment. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is towards the end of our Bibles and we're going to be in chapter 2. Specifically, if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. The words will be on the screen so that we could track through the text together. Uh, we're in this series, A People, where we're looking at the marks that mark us and move us forward as we seek to grow A People from all people passionate for God. We're unpacking the values that describe and define and drive who we are and what we want to do. We've been looking at this value that we become whole as we experience the benefits of being known, we become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. Today, we're going to close this value by looking at the final call to action to choose to share, choose to share. Uh, we've said that God looks at us as a family. We're not play cousins. We're actual brothers and sisters in Christ with the God who is as our father. And he allows us to reimagine what it means to be part of the family, to be in a place where we can experience these relationships of full love and security. We're a collection of stories, stories that have been formed by experiences and ultimately start to form and shape us, which we have to explore honestly so that we can engage others more authentically. And those move us towards this idea of intentionally, thoughtfully, and with courage and willingness sharing in life together. But it's assumed and still needs to be said that when all things are equal and when all things are considered, we will be as connected as we choose to be. We will be as known as we choose to be. And we will be as involved as we choose to be. Thus, the call to action is to actually choose to be known, to be connected, and to be involved in each other's lives because doing so pushes us towards the promise of wholeness and the benefits God says are attached to it. So while it's a pretty straightforward call to action and it's simple, it's not necessarily complex, it is still a significant ask. It's simple, but it's a significant ask because of this. The people of God embody an ethic of life and human flourishing. We are the force that steps in with voice and visibility for the vulnerable among us. We are the carriers of unique grace. We are the champions of like audacious hope that's grounded in reality. We, we bear the marks of hypocrisy and contradiction, of shame and imperfection. We bear within us this witness of remarkable love to be loved in the midst of hypocrisy and contradiction and shame and imperfection. We bear witness of the future. 
that the future is secured by the love of God. The love that comes down is poured out for our sake, evidenced in a crucified Savior that people could enter into relationship with the God who is and experience him as father. This is our story. This is our heritage. This is our inheritance. This is the good news of the gospel coming alive in a people, passing off this witness for generations and generations that God would be no, this is what it means to be the church. But because we do bear the marks of hypocrisy, because we bear the marks of contradiction, of shame, of imperfection, what you know and I know full well is that we intentionally, to our shame, churches, and unintentionally, us in particular, hurts people, that the church hurts people unintentionally. It is the product of existing within relationships that aren't perfect. And I'm not the first to say it, uh, I'm not the only one to say it, and I'm not gonna be the last, but as a pastor, like I apologize for the ways in which our church in particular has hurt people unintentionally. And I know there's other pastors across the globe, across our city, who feel the same, like a, a level of sorrow for the ways that people have experienced hurt by the people of God. No equivocation, no qualifications, just sorry. I'm not just a pastor, though. I, my first identity is son of God. It is member of a church, like the local church, the Brook. So I've experienced hurt as well. And I'm not the first to say this, I'm not the only one to say it, and I won't be the last, that the way we heal from church hurt fully is actually with the church. Like if we're going to heal from our church hurt, we actually need the church to do so. It actually forces us to stand face to face with a question when the broken parts of the church's humanity show up, what happens next? Do we just throw out this community? Do we throw out Jesus as well because of the pain and trauma we may have experienced? Or is there another way? This is why wholeness is the offer on the table. And this is why it's a significant ask because to choose to share, to step in, to pursue intentionally, willingly, regularly, courageously life with others within the context of a church community is an act of faith. It's an act of faith, but it is the way forward. It's to lean into the picture of who we are and what God offers for us not to pull away from it. And while this message isn't to deal with the various, various ways we hurt people as the church, it is gonna acknowledge that. But it is primarily to lift up the picture God puts in front of us aspirationally and says, hey, that's what I want for you, go get it. 
that's what I want for you, cultivate, pursue it. And in doing so, to fill our hearts with faith that even when that picture is not experienced fully, we still seek after it, faithfully, humbly, courageously. And so that's where 1 Thessalonians comes into play. It, 1 Thessalonians 2, particularly verse 8, is the summation of this experience that Jesus embodied and displayed, that the people of God in the New Testament, through the book of Acts, through all of the epistles modeled and displayed, it is summarized in this potent, packed statement, which is a call to action reflecting why we say, choose to share in life together. And as we walk through this passage, I want, to, I want us to look to it so that we can get this picture that we can lean into when things are difficult or when things are beautiful. Because to choose to share is to follow Jesus into messy and beautiful relationships with other people, Christians. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what this statement involves what this statement implies, and then we'll close with why the fear of the Lord is our friend. And so that'll be the flow of the text, the flow of our time. Look at that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, specifically the statement that we're given in verse 8, and unpacking what this statement involves, what this statement implies, closing with why the fear of the Lord is our friend. And that may even seem weird, but It'll make sense when we get there. So read with me and then we'll get to work. Uh, verse five reads like this. Uh, read with me. Uh, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. This passage is bursting with, I mean, come on, y'all. It's, it's not just poetic. It is theologically rich. It is a summary of a word scattered often throughout the New Testament. The summary is seen in verse eight. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready not just to share the gospel of God, but our own lives, our stories, the, the aspects of our hearts that are hidden. We were ready to disclose. We were ready to share our very self with you because you have become dear to us. That is a summary of this rich, robust idea called koinonia. Koinonia. It is translated often throughout the New Testament as fellowship. All right. Fear the Lord, fellowship, we are just dusting off 
all of the words and ideas and phrases from our Christian lexicon. And if these words aren't familiar to you, that's okay. Uh, they actually often become abused. And if these words have uh, baggage for you, don't pull away, dial in because there's so much here. This concept of fellowship, this idea of fellowship, it communicates this drawing together through intimate participation in life. So drawing together focuses on this unique and powerful experience and pull towards oneness. Intimate participation in life focuses on the various aspects of life that we all experience individually, but now we start to experience collectively together. And that spans from that which is simple to that which is complex, to that which is mundane, to that which is extraordinary. And while it is summarized here, its weight and beauty is built out and described in other places. I mean, all throughout the scriptures, there are really just two passages that come to mind. The, the first is First John. First John uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says, That which we have heard, that which we have seen, we proclaim to you that you would have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. It is bringing out this powerful, unique experience of God Himself pulling people together. This is the gospel. This is the God who is desiring relationship with people. And though they are far off, He draws them in to great intimacy and closeness to himself, bringing them into the family. This is the gospel where the God who is draws people who aren't just far off from him, but far off from each other to close relationship with each other. And, and John is saying, hey, we want this collision of verticality and horizontal, unique power, just drawing together. There's another passage that brings this out, though, too. It's Acts 2, um, specifically verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, the birth of the church, where after Peter gets up and he proclaims the excellencies of God, he interprets this unique, powerful moment where People from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds are experiencing the gospel. They're hearing the good news of Christ in their own language. And they're like, what is going on? And Peter gets up and starts to explain this and points to Jesus. There was this man who was more than a man and he walked among us and your people crucified him because they didn't want to be confronted with their own brokenness. But though he was crucified, he rose for the dead for them. And they hear this message and they're cut into the heart. And he's like, what, what must we do? And he's like, and just turn from your sin, turn to God, just believe that God is not a liar and receive the offer he puts on the table. And they do that and they are pulled into this glorious community, the family of God, the church. And verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to fellowship. 
almost summarizing this first century experience and then describing what that looked like, the intimate participation in a variety of ways. So it looked like experiencing all together, that they were experiencing the mighty works of God, not just in the healing of the sick, but really even in, in the, the supernatural yet simplistic transformation of a heart, the transformation of a heart that shows up as generosity, this tremendous grace and generosity among them that had them look at their stuff as not just for their own good and comfort, but really as a vehicle to further other people's good and comfort. So there was no needs among them because as people had needs, they looked at their, their resources and said, how can we pull it together for their sake? No, nobody was twisting their arms. Nobody was forcing them, but it was a response to the receiving of grace with a generous heart. And they're going throughout the temple together day by day. So there's this desire to hear the word of God, to hear who God is described through his word, to sing it over each other in Psalms, in the hymns. And, and not only that, they're breaking bread together, going throughout each other's homes, eating, sharing a meal, sharing stories. It is the scope and span of simplicity, complexity, mundane and extraordinary activity. But the thread that unites all of it is Jesus at the center. Jesus at the center of drawing them in. Jesus at the center of directing their activity. Jesus at the center shaping the motivation, the attitudes for why they engage in life together. Jesus at the center shaping the perspective of the activity. So there's this unique need for the word of God among them together. I mean, it is simple. It is complex. It is mundane. It is extraordinary. It is Fellowship, And it's what this involves and what Paul was willing, eager and ready to share, not just this message, this disembodied exchange of ideas, but an environment of relationships and family. It's rich. But while the center of that, we were ready to share not just the gospel of God, but our very selves is a clear call to action to step in to share life. There's other things surrounding this that have a lot of implications. And so what it involves is sharing life together, but there's some implications here. The implications are seen in what's at the beginning and what's at the end, what's at the beginning. So being desirously affectionate for you, right? To have this affectionate desire for you and then what's at the and because you became dear to us, those together just drip with desire. That there's this clear desire that's there. For, really, that's, I mean, honestly, that's, that's this entire passage, man. This is verse 7, where he's like, man, we were gentle among you. This is verse 17, where he said, though we were separated, almost we were torn from you physically. We couldn't engage in physical interaction but we weren't torn from you in our hearts. We 
We endeavored all the more eagerly. We desire to see you face to face. This just drips desire with several implications. But the two that I think like rise to the surface that are super helpful for us and, and step into uh, choosing to share well is to one see that this implies a prior experience that is detached from them as well as attached to them. And it implies a prerequisite of sincere desire that propels them forward to act. So let's take the prior experience that's detached from them as well as attached to them. First John helps us again, right? So first John, he says that which we've heard, that which we've seen, that we have this unique experience with God and others that is causing us deep pleasure, deep joy and moving us to share so much so that verse four, first John chapter one says that it makes our joy complete. It produces this fuller joy in our heart when we invite others to experience something that we have. This is powerful because it shows us that Paul wants something for them, not just something from them. He wants something for them and he wants something with them. This comes out in the beginning of this. This is Paul, Silas, and Timothy writing this, where he's describing, hey, you know our labor among you. You know that we didn't want to be a burden to you. You know that you weren't a project to us. We just experienced the reality and weight of what the gospel offers in that vertical intimacy, as well as that horizontal intimacy, and we want to share it with you. There's a prior experience that they're pulling from and they're inviting people into that's detached from them. It is natural. When we experience joy or good, the natural trajectory is to share it with others. We talk like this. The Mandalorian is amazing. And so I go ahead and tell people, yo, the Mandalorian is amazing. This is the way. This is what people expected from the second trilogy. Uh, and they were disappointed. Even though the second trilogy of Star Wars wasn't actually that bad. And so you're trying to pull people into it. This is when we talk about food. Yo, have you eaten that dirty chicken off 82nd and Northeast 2nd? Man, I, I know the name. It's, but... Move past the name and onto the legume because it has one of the best Haitian food in Miami. Top five. When we experience good, we want to invite others to do like come sharing it, man. And that is attached spiritually. It's like man, the gospel has been so rich to us. We want it for you. It's a prior experience that's implied, but it's also attached to them because you became dear to us. There was this growing experience of intimacy that caused us to want more of it. There was an actual relationship here. There was friendship. Now we underestimate the power of friendship in bringing community to life in creating environments where, where we feel secure, where we are more apt to share, to not withdraw, but to lean in and belong. And 
we overcomplicate the simplicity of what is present for friendship to actually be birth as well for friendship to continue to thrive. There's, there's really three things that you can just trace in the creation and cultivation of friendship, um, of intimacy, of relationship. The, the first is that there's these significant moments that are shared. That significant moments mean not just the high times, not just that which we celebrate, but that which we mourn together and suffer through together. In fact, this is Proverbs, where it talks about Proverbs 17, that a brother is born for adversity, that there's a unique level of intimacy when sadness is shared. This is Philippians 3, where, where Paul is bringing out that he's like, man, I, like, I want to know Christ, not just in the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his sufferings, that when we shed tears together, it's like our hearts are getting knitted closer and closer together as well. Significant moments, but it's not just the significant moments that are necessary for the creation of relationships, of friendships, but it's also necessary for the cultivation to maximize those significant moments. But there's shared feelings. There's this mutuality, like this mutuality where you actually want somebody, <laughs> which sounds basic, like, yeah, duh, but man, there's something powerful of feeling wanted to not feel like you are a burden, to not feel like somebody has to put up with you, but to feel like somebody is stepping towards you because they care and they want to. It's to have expectations that are accurate actually be met on a relational level. It's the sharing of feelings, this mutual affection. It's the sharing of stories. It's the man, this is who I am, this is what's going on in my life, this is what's happened in my life. And in the sharing of stories, the discovery of connection, this is the power of the you too, where somebody's sharing a story, and as they're sharing, you're like, oh my gosh, you're not hijacking the story, you're not projecting yourself in their story, but you see yourself and you're like, yo, you too? This is why C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest theologians and authors and writers of all time, he talks about that friendship is born in the moment when a person looks at another one and says, you too, it's powerful to be like, I'm not alone. I could actually be known. You could relate to me and I could relate to you. It's in those simple things that friendship is created and cultivated. And all of those are like displayed all throughout Thessalonians that there was this prior experience attached from them, but there was also prior experience attached to them that was enough to say, I want more of it. It was desire. Now here's the thing about desire, this prerequisite that was clearly there. Desire is fragile and it's not to be forced, it's meant to be fostered. It's meant to be cultivated. Because desire could show up out of nowhere and it could disappear just as quick. In fact, 
desires that aren't intentionally strengthened or sustained will always go away. So this is why towards the end of the year, we have these things called New Year's resolutions, which are really more like New Year's aspirations because February and March pulls our card. It exposes us. It's like, oh, I thought I really wanted that. But it was this budding desire in the beginning, but absent of intentionality to move and put rhythms and to practice and to strengthen and to try to sustain it, it went away. And this prerequisite of desire is meant to be cultivated that if you feel something, an instinct to say, man, you actually want to explore being connected to this person, you, you do act on it, but then you also start to put in the practices that sustain it, i.e. drawing on the experience we have with God that he pursues us, i.e. drawing on what we know is necessary to actually cultivate friendship, maximizing shared moments that are meaningful and significant, maximizing the sharing of feelings, actually expressing them, seeing if there's mutual affection, and then maximizing, stepping into the sharing of stories. These are all implications here that bring out the weight and the beauty of the offer and picture of life together with Jesus at the center. But this, as beautiful as it is, is terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. It is terrifying because you know and I know that to step towards relational intimacy is to expose yourself to relational disappointment and pain. And this is why we close with the fear of the Lord being our friend. The fear of the Lord is our friend. The fear of the Lord needs to be dusted off in our language. We need to use it more often. It's not used often because it's diminished and misdefined. When we think of the fear of the Lord, if you've heard it, it's often talked about with like terror, like almost like God being this cosmic boogeyman that moves you to obey and to act appropriately by threats. Every person everywhere has experienced what is known as the look from an adult, usually their parents. It is this instinctive expression on the face of parents to get their children in line. <laughs> and it strikes terror into the heart of every kids. And here's, here's the thing about this. Here's the thing about this. There is a place for that. But if that is the primary way that you describe or define a relationship, you are missing out on so much. In fact, the scriptures say that the way we are meant to understand the fear of the Lord is not primarily through terror, eyes where we're terrified, but hearts where we treasure, hearts that see God as he is, and move to act accordingly. The fear of the Lord is the recognizing of who God is and acting accordingly. And it leans primarily into the aspects, 
that cause us to stand in awe. It is to recognize that he's powerful and he could take our breath away if he chose because of our sin. But because he's personal and generous, he wants to take our breath away with his remarkable love and kindness. It is to stand in the intersection of that reality and to be moved to treasure him. And the fear of the Lord is our friend because the fear of man is our enemy. The fear of man is the residue in every single human heart that moves to diminish or deify other people. When we diminish them, we disregard the dignity that they have and their capacity to show us who we are and move us closer towards wholeness. And often the diminishing is a way to self-protect. You can't hurt me if you aren't close to me. So I'm going to cut you off before you even get close or we deify them. We place them in a place that they were never meant to occupy, where they start to become the standard of how we see ourselves and our self-confidence, our security, our emotions, our feet, like it rises and falls on what they say and what they do or what they don't say and what they don't do. And it is the tendency of every heart, but it's not just the tendency, it's a trap. This is what Proverbs 29 talks about. It talks about the fear of, the, of man as a snare. It keeps us entrapped to this prison of pity, of pride, of shame, of sin. Not relating to people well, not relating to ourselves well, not relating to God well, but it says those who trust in the Lord are secure. They aren't safe in the, sa in the sense of being untouchable but they're safe in the sense that God has them. He protects them and then he moves them towards life. The fear of the Lord dethrones people from places that they aren't meant to occupy. It lifts people up that have not been given the appropriate dignity. It is the antidote to the fear of man in our hearts it causes us to say, God is good and God has me. And if God is good and God has me, there's a different level of courage that I could live with and courage is necessary to choose to share, to step into that level of vulnerability, to be known, to be exposed, to be at the mercy on some levels of other people's sin and foolishness, but to see the greater picture of what God offers and says, hey, I want that for you. And so to move with a heart towards hope, to risk, we can't do that. We can't do that if the fear of the Lord isn't ruling our hearts, removing the tendency to be ruled by the fear of man. Man, this is what God says faith is for. <laughs> Cause I'm not gonna talk you into that. I'm not gonna preach you into that. Only the, only the Spirit of God can activate any of that. I just wanna plead with you and say, man, there's some relationships that are worth the risk. And what God says about involvement 
in the church is that there's relationships that you find that move you towards greater wholeness. They help you see who God is and they move you towards effectiveness in life, experiencing God as he is and then sharing that because you have this great joy. There are some relationships that are worth the risk. And we discover that after risk is taken. Yeah, we move wisely. Yeah, we move cautiously, but we move courageously because God has us. Wherever you are, God has you. If you know Christ, if you've received the gospel, God has you. And he offers you not to have this exclusive, private relationship and call that life, but to experience the joy and the complexity of relationship with other people. Let's pray. God, we need you. God, be with us. Please. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.